Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. We're joined today by one of the busiest men in theater, at least in New York, who is never seen on stage, but his work certainly is. Within the last year or two, some little shows on Broadway, Frozen, Doubt, Naked Girl in the Appian Way, A Touch of the Poet. Welcome, Doug Hughes. Thank you very much for having me. Gentlemen. How do you find the time to do everything that you do? Well, I, I it, it it only feels uh, oppressive when uh, I take a moment to uh, to look back. I mean, I don't I don't think you're likely to have many guests on your program who complain of overwork, mm-hmm. uh, since uh, uh, underwork is the the norm uh, in the theater, and. Um, and all the things I've done uh, feel, recently anyway, feel like such drastic uh, channel changes each time. I mean, to do an O'Neill, to do Brian E. Lavery's play uh, Frozen, to to have uh, uh, the continued opportunities to keep working on uh, on Shanley's uh, doubt. They all are productive of energy. So uh, I'm sure pretty soon I'm going to have to sit down and shut up, but I'm not going to just yet. Do you ever get confused as to which theater to go to on a certain day? (laughs) I'm pointed in the right direction. I have uh, a a great uh, assistant, and uh, and I've got to say that uh, it's a dream fulfilled to... I remember that uh, when I was doing Frozen on, on Broadway, I was also... Uh, doing uh, this W.S. Gilbert play down at uh, the Lucille Hortel, a play called Engaged. And uh, the idea that I'd be doing this Victorian uh, farce and hop on the IRT uh, at Sheridan Square and get off at 50th Street and walk into uh, uh, the circle in the square to work on uh, Bryony's rather potent play, uh, that just seemed uh, the apogee of uh, a life in the theater to me. Well, I was going to ask this after we went on for a little bit, but you sort of raised it already, which is, is there a Doug Hughes type of play? Or how does Doug Hughes decide what it's re- going to be? I'm happy to report there is not. Uh, I think that I'm a, I'm a, an avowed uh, generalist, and I think I got into this because of uh, the shape-shifting nature of the theater. It's a it's a point of pride to me that uh, I can do a Moliere play and that I can then uh, spend some time with um, uh, a writer like John on uh, on the very very uh, uh, spare um, concise uh, uh, palette of uh, of a play like uh, like Doubt. I mean that's it. It seems to me that uh, you know working in the theater, aside from the fact that you occasionally have your afternoons free. The great, great privilege of it is uh, the food from many lands aspect of it. So, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm determined not to uh, to mine a, a narrow vein. I want to talk more later just about your life in the theater because I think it's a very interesting one. But but let's be specific now. You, you, you mentioned Doubt, which uh, a little over a year ago, uh, or a year ago now, was playing off-Broadway at Manhattan Theater Club was then taken up by MTC to be produced commercially on Broadway, where it's been a great success. You are just coming to the end of having gone back into the rehearsal studio with an entirely new cast? Well, or- it's a four-character play, and three of its members... So Adrian Lennox remains. Adrian Lennox, who plays Mrs. Muller, is uh, uh, an extraordinary performance, is going to stick around. 
And she's going to be uh, uh, joined by uh, Day Mylene Atkins, who will uh, succeed Cherry Jones, Ron Eldard, who will succeed Brianne F. O'Byrne, and Jenna Malone, who's succeeding uh, Heather Goldenhirsch. So what's it like to go back after having, of course, such success with the play, and it's really more than simply putting in new people, but remounting the play with with largely a new cast? It's a great experience, and it's a it's a wild experience. Uh, I mean, the theater always is, to some extent, a, a recurring dream. Uh, you you set up a, a framework. The author has established uh, most of the uh, prerogatives. Uh, his, he or she has uh, most of the prerogatives. But as a director, you get to define uh, the terms of of the event. And um, a couple of members of our company have seen the new company have seen uh, the production. Uh, Cherry and Brian and and I did uh, together, and uh, and uh, one has not chosen not to see it, uh, and um, so we follow the text as we followed it uh, the first time around. Uh, I can't erase the memory of things that I've done, but nor do I find myself compelled to impose on uh, one trio of actors. Uh, things that seemed uh, perfectly suited to another. I mean, I, I, you know, it's a great privilege to be able to uh, have a play run long enough uh, to have a, a succeeding company. And um, and therefore, I, I think that uh, spiritually, the correct thing to do is to kind of plow it up again. Um, and that takes uh, some discipline and, and some energy, but uh, it's been rewarded. Well, with someone like Cherry Jones as Sister Aloysius with a very, very strong, very memorable performance, how do you help the new actress in this role both find her own voice and not be a carbon copy necessarily, but work to her strengths? Do you reinterpret the role? Do you give her different direction? Well, you know, it won't be the first time uh, on your program that somebody has said uh, uh, a huge uh, portion of the director's responsibility is casting. And Mm -hmm. if you cast... Um, Day Mylene Atkins, who I think is one of the great actors of our time, uh, to succeed another great actor of our time, uh, you're acknowledging that these two ladies are, you know, phenomenal genetic accidents. They're both incredibly talented, but they're both they're very very different from each other. And so uh, the the play very different as as people or as actors or in, in I'd say as, as as both. I uh-huh. mean, there there are issues uh, uh, that. Um, you know, Eileen, for instance, is going to uh, uh, play the part as uh, a woman who was born originally in Ireland and uh-huh. has spent uh, most of her uh, life here. I mean, John and Eileen and I decided that uh, her Aloysius would be uh, uh, born in the west of Ireland and somebody who emigrated here as a young uh, woman. So. Uh, just uh, right off the bat, it's going to sound uh, very different from uh, from Cherry's uh, Bronx-born uh, approach to it. Um, Eileen uh, has uh, is in no way under the spell of, of Cherry's performance. She hasn't uh, she chose uh, very uh, principally not to see it. And uh, and I think she's got um, a different uh, radar for certain things. Uh, I mean, I I certainly feel that uh, you know my experience with the play over whatever it's been now, uh, over a year now since we started to work on it at the Manhattan Theater Club is of uh, some real value uh, in um, 
shaping the contours of the play and and introducing the actors to the the new actors to the the reserved spare approach we we took to John's play but uh the the you know my taste in there seems to uh to coincide and uh, I've just come from uh, teching uh, in the first uh, six scenes of the show at the curb uh, this afternoon and uh uh, you know, we, we morale continues to be high. How much input does uh, John Patrick Shanley have at this point into the new cast and, and what you're doing? Well, I mean, show? we certainly take every uh, decision about casting in uh, in constant consultation. I mean, you know, it's it's his property, and uh, we went through the process of uh, of recasting uh, the play. Uh, uh, very much together as we did the first uh, the first time out. At, uh, John doesn't uh, first time round. Uh, John um, was not much at rehearsal, uh, and he's uh, been not not at all at rehearsal except for the sort of ceremonial first day this time out. We often hear both actors, both writers and directors, say that when working on a show, the actors often find things that the author or director may not have found themselves. Have there been new discoveries in doubt for you? Oh, very definitely. I think the things that... I, I actually think that the, um, the things that I'm hearing uh, differently, uh, particularly in the early going of the play, there are uh, the things that are uh, simpler, the things that are uh, more complex, uh, the things that are busier now, the things that are more in repose now. And that um, uh, that's the way we hoped it would be. I mean, I think uh, a carbon copy uh, would would feel uh, dead. Uh, and there, uh, it's been wonderful to kind of release from uh, from the tape of that original production. It, you know, you you have to you have to work with something living. You can't be uh, recollecting a memory. Now, as you complete this work on Doubt, which begins next week with the new cast, you immediately turn to going into rehearsal with John Shanley's newest play. Yes, I do. When you did Doubt, although Shanley has a long list of plays and you certainly are an extremely busy director, it wasn't Manhattan Theatre Club's Broadway space. It ended up on Broadway. Are the stakes higher now going to work on Defiance? Do you feel that? Because certainly there's going to be more attention because it's a re-teaming from such great success. Yes. I mean, uh, the uh, the play is... Uh, we're doing it in the, in the very same theater that we premiered, uh, Doubt. Uh, it has, albeit a two-syllable, one-word title that begins uh, with D. It is short. Uh, it is... Uh, Laconic. It is set in uh, uh, in uh, America's uh, somewhat recent uh, past. So I suppose uh, comparisons are um, are odious. But I don't know that there's any way to uh, unwire that phenomenon. I mean, this play won the Tony Award. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It won lots of other things. And it seems to be that rare bird these days, a, a straight play that uh, starts to, uh, that, that becomes a kind of uh, uh, phenomenon uh, in what looks to be like quite a long run. 
so uh, uh, you know, if you if you want to labor under a curse, that's a nice curse to labor under. Um, the uh, no, will will the play be able to uh, sneak up on people uh, the way that doubt might have? Uh, no, it 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 won't be, and I think it'd be foolish to uh, uh, say that uh, it can. However, John and I are going to work uh, as though uh, uh, doubt never happened. Uh, it's a, it's an extraordinarily interesting play, and a play that deals with um, uh, obedience, defiance, knowing why orders are given, knowing why orders are taken. Uh, it's a play that's looking very squarely at the phenomenon of the military in this country, and I think uh, 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 the fact that uh, uh, our foreign policy is so led these days uh, by uh, uh, the threat of the use of force and uh, uh, and the, the, the power of our military is such a factor in our, uh, our uh, approach to uh, the rest of the globe uh, makes it a, a very, very powerful play to well, watch. As I understand it, it's set in 1971 on the Marine, Marine Corps base in uh, North Carolina. That's true, Camp Lejeune. Yeah, what is, what is the basic uh, storyline? Well, you know, 1971, I think that uh, a lot of people in the military might uh, think of that year as maybe the lowest ebb in uh, in morale uh, in the modern uh, military. I mean, uh, uh, Vietnam was certainly uh, considered a, uh, a failed uh, mission. Uh, by that point, we were... Um, uh, trying uh, to de-escalate uh, uh, a population of um, uh, disgruntled, underappreciated, and in certain cases ruined uh, soldiers uh, was being uh, shipped back home. And uh, that population uh, of Marines is very much on, this, uh, on the base. It was also a time of uh, really uh, intense... Uh, uh, struggle uh, racially in this country, and um, and that uh, the divide between uh, black and white uh, was playing out uh, uh, powerfully uh, in the military, um, and so um, the play focuses on a, a lieutenant colonel uh, who feels it's his uh, job to do something about. Uh, uh, the the racial incidents that are, are plaguing uh, his platoon, um, and um, his wife is a character. Uh, a young uh, uh, African American uh, lieutenant is a very important character, and uh, matters of uh, of faith are, uh, are, are a powerful element in the play. There's a, uh, a chaplain, a very very compelling uh, character. John was in the Marines and served in, at Camp Lejeune. Doubt certainly is a, a strong conflict between the nun and the priest, and the ending is very much in doubt, uh, so to speak. There's a definite conflict going on. It's a small show with four people in the cast. How about Defiance? What size cast? What kind of conflict is going on? Well, there is, uh, um, just as uh, Doubt's uh, name implies its nature, so does uh, Defiance. Uh, the uh, uh, it's a small company show. Uh, there are just half a dozen people in it, but the uh, uh, the notion of uh, is obedience inside uh, a power structure, inside a hierarchy, 
the highest uh, good is not a defiance at times. Uh, the higher good, to break the chain of command, to defy an order, to reject an order. Um, that, I think, summarizes the nature of the conflict. Well, obviously, you've been so busy these days that we can't go back and talk about every play you've done, but you have a show running on Broadway right now, which is a change of pace, Eugene O'Neill's Touch of the Poets. Yes. Um, how did you come to that particular project? Well, I've been I've been working uh, quite a bit for uh, Todd Hames, who At runs the Roundabout Theatre, and I'd been working on um, a new plays for him. Uh, three new plays, one at, at their Broadway theatre, the American Airlines, and the two uh, uh, new plays of uh, Stephen Belber and John Robbie Bates at their uh, their off-Broadway house, uh, The Pells. And it w- Todd was the, uh, the motive uh, force. Uh, it was a play he'd wanted to do for a long time, and he asked me, if I had um, had uh, read it or seen it, and I had seen uh, the '78 production that Quintero directed with uh, with Robards, uh, just as I was getting out of college, and um, I think at one point Todd and um, Liam Neeson and uh, the younger Hall, uh, not Peter Hall's son, uh, Edward Hall, Edward Hall uh, had uh, envisioned a production of it. And uh, they tabled that uh, plan, and uh, Todd talked to me about the play, and I thought that uh, Gabriel Byrne might be a great uh, con melody. And Gabriel and I began uh, emailing each other. He was making a picture in Australia. And um, we'd read the play and write to each other and read the play again and write to each other and uh, so on. And by the time he finished the picture, I thought uh, we had a forged a kind of you know, consensus of spirit. Uh, I think we thought we knew how to do the play then. It took a, it, it, uh, I think both of us found it among the wilder animals we've ever gotten in the room with. I think with the possible exception of, uh, of The Winter's Tale, uh, it's the harder plays well, I've done. What's so challenging? Because it is, as in the O'Neill canon, it's not one of the ones that we see as frequently. Long, it's not Long Day's Journey, Iceman, even Iceman Cometh, which you have the length challenge, but we seem to see that come back. Why do you think uh, this is such a tough show? I, I think it's a, because it's um, like those play, uh, a play like Winter's Tale. I think it is a, a wild combination of, of dramatic elements. I think there's part of it that, that is unabashedly melodramatic. I think there's a part of it that feels like uh, an early... Uh, Busico play like the poor of New York. I mean the melodramas that came out of uh, uh, Ireland and England uh, in the uh, Victorian and Edwardian era. Plays like uh, James O'Neill, Eugene O'Neill's father, uh, might have done or or read or or considered doing. And I think in writing that part of Con Melody, uh, he was, I, I'm sure, uh, creating a role that uh, he would have ideally cast his father in. Uh, a real blood and thunder actor of of the nineteenth century, and um, then I think also in the play, there's a, a wild historical cycle going. I mean, as you may know, he he incredible ambition that he he he, he conceived the play as the start of a ten play cycle, which he he never completed, but worked on fiendishly. So um, there are those obligations in the play that that. Uh, and and freight in that play 
that makes it very difficult for uh, poor slobs like uh, me and Gabriel who are not doing all ten plays but are just doing uh, uh, the one. It also, like a lot of O'Neill plays, uh, the emotional temperature of the, of the show uh, can change uh, not just uh, speech to speech or scene to scene but I'd say sentence to sentence uh, so that um, uh, parsing uh, the play and uh, uh, forging a kind of consensus for the uh, whatever it is the uh, 14 of, or so uh, in the company uh, and finding uh, the guts to continually change tone uh, change attack uh, which is what I think, uh, I think I think the play has violent mood swings and uh, I think it's up to the company to uh, and to the director to learn how to uh, to find them all. For the members of our audience who may not be familiar with The Touch of the Poet, Con Melody, you mentioned the name. That's the character that Gabriel Byrne yes, plays. Yes, the character at the center of the piece who uh, is um, an immigrant uh, to this country. Uh, you know, when I was a kid and growing up, uh, I remember how many times my, you know, peasant... Irish background was glamorized by my father who would speak of, you know, the Hughes who lived in castles in Ireland. And, you know, that notion of when you come to America, you, uh, you're leaving something, you're leaving your origins, you're leaving, um, uh, you're, you're, you're living in exile. And, uh, and you have the luxury and the burden of recreating yourself. And Con Melody, Gabriel's character, the play is set in 1828. Uh, just as Andrew Jackson was about to be elected president. And um, and you have a man who is not sure whether he's an aristocrat, a peasant, English, Irish, American, and who has a spectacular uh, crisis of identity uh, in front of you uh, uh, for the play's length. Uh, it's, a, it's a tour de force role, and I, I don't think you need a dashing, romantic figure who is also a a character man completely free of uh, worry about uh, uh, of, of vanity. And uh, you need somebody who can be torrential with language. You need a great wit. And all of those things uh, Gabriel Byrne is. He's got a great soul, great, most, one of the most soulful actors I've ever worked with. Well, in that description, you provided us a perfect segue because you mentioned your father. <laughs> and I said we wanted to go back and talk about how your career grew. You are part of a truly theatrical family. Your dad, Barnard Hughes, um, a well-known actor, known uh, perhaps best for Da, which he did on Broadway now some 25 years ago. Um, Prelude to a Kiss, a career stemming back to even sharing the stage with Richard Burton in Hamlet, directed by John Gielgud. Your mom, Helen Stenborg, most recently on Broadway in The Crucible a couple of seasons ago. Um, Your sister, Laura, also an actress. How did this inform you? Were you going to be in theater from the moment you became aware of what it was, or... uh, or was this something you came around to much later? I, I think it, it, the child of actors has to acknowledge at a certain point, with all respect to my parents, that uh, you're not the only blessed event in your parents' lives. That, that there's something about the appointment they have uh, with an audience at whatever it is, 8 o'clock, 8.10, that had a great lure for me. I mean, where were they going at night? And I always wanted to go where they were going. I always wanted to go through uh, the stage door. 
And I always found myself envying most of all the kind of uh, collegiality, the comradeship of, of people who went about making their livings in this kind of wonderfully subversive way, this sort of runaway with a circus way. Now, this is even as my parents were doing everything possible to insulate me from the insecurities of the business and sending me to good schools and trying to grow me up respectably, I was very drawn there. But I didn't, I didn't have a, a strong yen as a performer until maybe in, into high school. And even when I went to college, uh, I was a biology major and... Uh, I, I I didn't study the theater. I never did study the theater properly. I, I, I mean, a few years ago, I went to teach at Yale, and uh, I felt terribly self-conscious. I mean, I'd never gone to drama school. Well, I dug up one old credit that you appeared on stage in an As You Like It at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park in 1973. Yes. It was the only acting credit of yours I came up well, with. Well, uh, the rest have been uh, uh, rightly consigned to the ash bin of history. But I... Um, I uh, that was a great job. I mean, I was seventeen, <clears throat> and it was a production uh, in, in the park with Raúl Julia as Orlando and uh, Mary Beth Hurd as Celia, and uh, 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 Kathy Widows. Kathleen Widows played uh, uh, Rosalind, and um, and I was just graduating high school. I mean, I felt so unbelievably super cool, you know, walking out of, having to leave my graduation early and, you know, very ostentatiously hailing a cab in front of all my classmates to get down to the run-through <laughs> at the public uh, for Mr. Papp. Uh, it was a, a production uh, uh, that he was producing at the Delacorte in Central Park. And I remember running the show, running down there and running through the show and the whole company singing for he's a jolly good fellow to me, and bring, producing this gigantic cake. Um, it was so moving. I mean, I was changing clothes all night playing, you know, Dennis and singing a little song and uh, moving this chair, and it was all absolutely great gig. And um, the next day, uh, Joe Pep uh, fired the director and took over the production himself. And uh, we all showed – the next day was the first day in Central Park. And we all sat in the first through few rows. And he appeared and he announced to – he was such a culture hero of mine, such a great man, such an incredible uh, force and somebody who, who, who uh, you know, I idolized and still do. And he announced to the company – that he uh, uh, that there was nothing uh, nothing personal, but he had fired the director, and that as of this morning he was going to uh, be redirecting the play from the ground up, bringing out its Marxist elements, and the uh, the pa- the show had been based on the paintings of Watteau, and it had all been very uh, you know self consciously elegant, and suddenly we found ourselves with. Uh, shit smeared all over our uh, our silk breeches and hauling barrels around and I have no idea if the, you know uh, how the production really turned out but god it was an incredibly great job well it sounds have. like a lesson for a director to see how quickly you can change <laughs> but i have to ask is is becoming a director the ultimate revenge if your parents are actors well i have said that there is there must be some kind of edipal uh, 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 element involved in it um you know, it, it, it seemed 
but 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 there may be a, a much more sentimental and and uh, uh, warmer phenomenon, and that is that I I like to be with actors. I I like their company. I think there's something about their uh, gallantry, their courage, their imaginations uh, that that I find uh, magnetic, and. Um, and so, you know, the job uh, I've managed to uh, carve out for myself uh, allows me to spend time with them. Well, Howard gave your family tree, your parents, certainly your sister, on stage. You were briefly on stage. You described the excitement of being in that production. How did you make the switch to go behind the scenes, and why did you do that instead instead of going out with an on-stage career? Well, you know, I went to uh, I went to Harvard College uh, after my big uh, glamorous summer at the Delacorte, uh, and um, I doggedly pursued uh, my degree in biology, and there was no formal theater training program at Harvard, and I don't think there still is, and I I think for undergraduates, I, th- I still think that's a very good idea. I mean, I think when you're an undergraduate, you should not be spending every waking moment, you know, figuring out your production of how to succeed in business. You know, you probably should be reading a book or learning some hard science or doing or learning a language or something. But there was a lot of extracurricular activity, but there was no theater at Harvard at that time that did plays written by uh, students. And there were a lot of aspiring, interesting writers. And uh, so I started a theater that uh, would, you know, I considered myself a little uh, empresario, I guess, and I started a theater. We called it the Premier Society that would would put on uh, shows written by students. This was still at Harvard? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. undergraduate. Uh-huh. You know, I was mm-hmm. 19 or whatever. And, uh, and, the, uh, and because nobody considered it glamorous to do so, it, it fell to me by default to, uh, to direct them. Somebody and had I, to do it. Yeah, I found it... Um, I just enjoyed... Uh, the work. And I, I found I liked my... I had performed. I had performed as an undergraduate. But I found I just uh, tolerated myself better, liked myself better in in uh, this uh, new role. And uh, I've been very, very inspired by a couple of directors that uh, my dad had worked with at the public theater, uh, particularly the late, extraordinarily gifted... Uh, A.J. Antoon. He was always he was a guest at our house. He he won the Tony Award for that championship season. He directed a beautiful Much Ado About Nothing that my father did. And the notion of of that kind of leadership uh, and the synthesis of concerns uh, to be involved with text, to be involved with music, to understand something about. Um, uh, architecture and design to uh, to be with the actors, which I think was the big, as I've said, you know, emotional draw uh, for me. Um, it was so satisfying. And, uh, and I guess I was rewarded and encouraged in my little undergraduate world. So when I got out of school, I just, uh, I, I bumptiously uh, decided that I was not going to go to drama school and that I would try to farm myself out to various, uh, you know, I, I thought I would forge a kind of old-fashioned apprenticeship for myself, and I kept farming myself out as an assistant. 
Was, well, there, was there ever a conscious decision not to pursue biology? Did the theater thing just happen, or did you really consciously It took over. It, it uh-huh. took over. And I had to, uh, I had to bail from my biology. I remember my advisor was uh, a very distinguished uh, George Wald, who uh, had won the Nobel for his work on the chemistry of the eye. And I, I, he was a great hippy-dippy professor with, you know, a yurt in the back of his house and uh, long hair. And, uh, you know, it was an, in, an, in an era where uh, his, uh, my, uh, my willingness to bail from the biology department seemed to be just fine with him. I remained on very good terms with him. Well, we began this interview by talking about your back-to-back directing credits here in New York and certainly your Broadway credits. But it, it, it bears bringing out, as you even talk about apprenticing yourself, that your career has really been forged in the not-for-profit theaters. Oh, my and God. even you've... all of these shows are not-for-profit origination. But Manhattan Theater Club as an associate in the early 80s and then more than a decade at Seattle Rep, yeah. the artistic directorship at Long Wharf. How do you think that brought you now to where you are? Well, I don't know how you have a career, uh, how you make a living, and how you grow at all without uh, the structure of the not-for-profit theater. I mean, it, it seemed very, very plain to me as as long ago as 1978 when I was you know, first knocking around in New York and trying to get somebody to pay attention to what I might do as a director, that I, I, I need, you know, a, a life in service to the, the not-for-profit theater. If you're interested in what I'm interested in, uh, classic plays, uh, new work, where, where else was it going to happen? Uh, only in the not-for-profit. So I got really lucky in the 80s, and I got a job as the associate artistic director of the, of the Manhattan Theater Club, and there were all these great new shows coming through there. I mean, in my time there, in various capacities, there was Ain't Misbehavin', there was uh, Crimes of the Heart, uh, there were all these wonderful St- Stephen Polyakov uh, plays, David Edgar plays. And we should say, this is Manhattan Theater Club when they were still in the small theaters oh, up on the Upper East, East Side. 73rd it was not Street. what we think it was, of now. It was a very, you know, much funkier operation, and, and we'd run up and down, you know, but it was run by Lynn and Barry, out of a place called the Bohemian Hall on East 73rd Street. I mean, you'd open the door to the men's room and people would be, you know, rehearsing in there. Space was at a premium. We'd run up and down the fire escapes on the back of the... Uh, I remember my office. I, I'd walk up the fire escape to Lynn's office on the floor above if I read <laughs> a good play. I mean, it was really... I mean, I I think of it as, you know, somehow comparable to the the early days at the... At the New Yorker, uh, there wasn't a lot of money, but it was a fantastic uh, time. And, um, and then when I realized I'd never directed a play by a dead author, uh, I'd never directed a classic, I'd never done a Shakespeare, I'd never done an Ibsen, I'd never done a Kaufman and Hart, I really did start looking around, uh, and I, I was fortunate to wind up as the associate director to Dan Sullivan, who was running uh, the Seattle Rep. And that was... You know, it's beautiful proscenium theater. Uh, I, I, I didn't know how to drive a car. I didn't know there was much life outside, you know, the Northeast Corridor. And to get airlifted out to Seattle and this city where people uh, uh, deeply cared about the theater. And in fact, the theater seemed to be the sovereign art form. And there was a community of fantastic actors, actors that I learned so much from, so much better than I was and, and so much 
you know, superior radar for the stage. And out there I did Ostrovsky and I did Moliere and I did, you know, eight Shakespeare plays and I did Ibsen. And, you know, I could work every day. And that is uh, such a luxury. How rare to have a, a, a place to go where there's that kind of uh, dedication and focus on, on the practice of, of the drama. It was a phenomenal uh, privilege. I, I went out there thinking, oh, you know, it'll be some kind of theatrical finishing school for me, some sort of two-year adventure, and I was infatuated. I loved it, and I stayed for a decade. When we started our chat, we started uh, with Doubt, the show for which you won the Tony for your direction. Uh, Cherry Jones was on this program about, oh, seven months ago, and she said at that time she did not know how the show ended, how the play ends. It's the conflict between the nun and the priest, did he or did he not do it type thing, and hence the title. The audience is left in doubt, and so is Cherry Jones. She said only two people know did he do it or not, the playwright, John Patrick Shanley, and the director, Doug Hughes. And the actor. And the actor. That's right. She said the actor. Brian. Will you now, tell, will you now tell her after she leaves the show? I always, we always had a deal that when she gave her last performance in, um, in Doubt, uh, that the day the curtain rang down, she'd be enlightened. But I, uh, I'm very happy to report that uh, Cherry's going to do uh, the National Company of Doubt. Uh-huh. So she will need to continue to live in <laughs> she'll, doubt. She'll have to wait. For a while longer <laughs> so that uh, she, uh, she's not going to be uh, uh, hipped to uh, uh, the backstory yet. But Lisa. yes, we made a decision when we went into rehearsal with that play that there would never, ever be any discussion, and never any learned or informed discussion about what actually happened or didn't. Uh, that it seemed that the, the commodity, the thing we were selling was doubt, and we were going to try to uh, make sure that those who needed to be in doubt were, honest to God, in doubt. And are still going to be in doubt, it seems. And they will be, yes. I mean, uh, so now Ron Eldard has been uh, admitted to this... Uh, to the secret this, society. The secret society <laughs> with the secret handshake, yes. Well, with doubt now running on Broadway, a touch of the poet running, and starting previews on February 9th with an opening date of February 28th, Defiance coming up, you still have a pretty full plate. Yes, my God, you scare the hell out of me when I hear that I'm in previews on February 9th. <laughs> I better go home and do some homework. Well, we'll let you go then. Doug, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Very grateful to you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thanks, Doug. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.